Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Gay With God podcast, a safe place for us to share our stories and support one another. How long did we know? What challenges did we face? Did we lose our faith? When did we find our way back home? Or are we still searching? The stories you hear on this podcast will melt your heart and strengthen your belief that in God, all things are possible and you can be authentically gay with the God of your understanding. I'm your host, Midge Noble, and I am very honored that you are here. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Gay With God podcast. I really appreciate you guys coming back every week and listening and sharing. And for those of you who leave comments, I really do read them and I respond to you. And I thank you because it really helps me know what you're liking and and things that you want to see. So thank you so much for being invested in this podcast. So today I have a really cool guest named Jarley Baber, and he is the author and illustrator of Wesley Brothers Comics a weekly web comic featuring Methodist founders, John and Charles Wesley. Guys, it's brilliant. You will have to check this out. Um, so he, he does this for the founders, John and Charles Wesley, as themselves in today's world. In 2019, his comics were collected and published by Abington Press as Submitting to Be More Vile, The Illustrated Adventures of John and Charles Wesley. He is currently illustrating an ongoing weekly series called A History of Incompatibility. Following historical events surrounding the developments of the divides in the church over LGBTQ inclusion, he loves life in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Go Heels, where he works as a full-time youth minister as an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church. His life is His life in comics began as a 13-year-old comic strip artist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, but a call to ministry put his comic work on hold for a few years. He enjoys biking with his partner and two kids, studying queer history and theology, and mint juleps on the hammock on a lazy summer afternoon. That sounds beautiful. (laughs) You can follow his comics, which update weekly at www.wesleybrothers.com. You can also follow at www.facebook.com Wesley Bros comic and I'll put those in the in the on the show page or become a patron at www.patreon.com slash Wesley Brothers. So Charlie, welcome so much to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. Oh, it's exciting for me too. And it was exciting for me to see the comics because I I just never knew that existed until your friend and and now my friend um talked about you being on this show and said you know he's he's cool and he does these comic strips and i'm like what (laughs) What? (laughs) and i had to go check that out and i love them and i think you're so brilliant so i welcome you uh to the show and charlie tell us your story sure uh well i am 41 years old and i grew up in uh rural Virginia, a tiny little town called Cartersville, uh, mostly just a farming community. Um, we joke that there's no stoplight still to this day in the whole county. And um, uh, I went to the only public school in the county and with a graduating class of 61 people. So we're talking small town. Small. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I grew up in the United Methodist Church and uh, we were part of a three-point charge, which meant we shared one pastor between three churches. Wow. 
So some Sundays the pastor would just show up to preach the sermon and then drive off to the next church to make all of the worship services. Wow. But, um, but it, was, it, was, it was very small and um, a lot of my family was there. I feel like we took up one third of the section of <laughs> seats in the church. Um, but we were, we were also, um, my family was very committed to, you know, we were the ones who got there early to set up chairs and stayed after to clean up. And uh-huh. it just, it just was a part of my life. Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess as a little kid, I, I didn't know I was different until people told me I was different. Uh-huh. Um, so I remember, um, I don't know, I just enjoyed playing with other people in non-aggressive ways. So I do remember at like daycare or after school care as a very young kid. Um, I just, the, the girls were playing with dolls and nobody else was playing anything I was interested in. So I started playing with them being a girl and, and I was just uh-huh. like, what? Okay. Um, and I, I didn't really think anything of it. I, I loved drawing. Um, I was, I was a fairly aloof, I think. Um, <laughs> so I just, all of my free time as a kid was spent drawing comics and cartoons and mm-hmm. um and so as a young uh as an older elementary school student um <laughs> I guess this was an introduction to uh recognizing that I was at least not like everybody else we had like a, a Christian sexual education retreat oh. um awkwardly enough my mother was one of the oh. people in charge of it because <laughs> oh she was she was a nurse and she was really good with kids and um but it was called created by god it was a curriculum by the methodist church it actually was really well done um but it had it had you know drawings of boys and girls to help you understand the difference between them and um i I remember i was probably fourth or fifth grade going through this and um I definitely was more interested in the boys than I was the girls, <laughs> but I, I wasn't going to tell anybody that. Sure. I just, I, um, so it, again, it wasn't something that I consciously thought about. I just noticed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as a teenager, I um, got the opportunity to submit a comic strip to the Richmond Times Dispatch in Virginia, and uh, which was the big newspaper of the state. And um, I was one of the winning contestants. Wow. And um, of the winning contestants, I was one of four kids that they selected to, uh, quote unquote, be on staff for the Richmond Times Dispatch and create monthly comics. Oh, wow. Um, that would go in their youth section of the newspaper. Um, so uh, from the age of 13 to the age of 19, I was making monthly comics for the school new or for the state newspaper Uh and I I thought this was going to be my profession like I was figuring out how to get like do that for a living I guess around the age of 14 or 15 I became uh, I was I was really into my faith as well I just I I, faith came very easy for me and it brought me a lot of life and joy and community and because I was in rural Virginia, there wasn't much else to do besides youth groups. So I, I became a part of like three different youth groups. Just <laughs> it was like all my extracurricular time. Um, and so one youth group was Methodist and led by 
a, a brilliant youth pastor who's still my uh, good friend. Um, and, and he was just so excited about teaching us the Greek and Hebrew in the Bible. And, and like, for whatever reason, the energy he brought, uh, helped us kids get excited about kind of digging mm-hmm. deeper in scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also, uh, were really put an emphasis on service and missions in the community, like home repairs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I got plugged into a youth group that my parents and my pastor were very concerned about, um, because it was at an assemblies of God church, very charismatic and, um, and I didn't know at the time why everybody was so upset I was going to this, but it was like extremely conservative church. Um, so, but they had a rock band and <laughs> a light show and um, everybody's raising their hands in worship and praying in tongues. And I was like, wow, these people have real faith. And so I, I really just started leaning into that charismatic experience but at the same time, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it's almost like all they talked about was sex and how bad it was for you as a teenager to even want to have sex oh. and um, how great sex is when you're married to your future partner. Hmm. And um, so in retrospect, I understand that that was kind of like this purity culture that was very common in the 90s. Um, in evangelical Christianity. Um, and, and so I, I developed this complex around my sexuality that I don't think I'd had before attending that youth group. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I knew I wasn't attracted to girls at all, um, but I hadn't met any guys my age that I was attracted to. So it just didn't seem like much of a, a thing to worry about. Yeah. Um, there, but then I did notice there would be men who volunteered in ministry that I was attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to do with all of this. I, I, I started through that um, Assemblies of God youth group, just hating any sexual urges I had at all mm-hmm. and believing they were from the devil and praying that God would set me free. I, I, I think anybody that grew up in that culture, gay or straight, Mm -hmm. um, has been sexually traumatized by that kind of teaching. Yeah. Um, Because I have loads of friends who are straight that grew up in that same environment. And we all just sort of commiserate on how how it stunted our our well-being and our growth. Yeah. I I still wasn't, I I was nowhere close to saying I'm gay. Okay. Right, Um, right. I, I did um, remember a couple of occasions where we would see uh, someone who appeared to be gay or maybe uh, two men holding hands or being affectionate, which was very rare in central Virginia in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember someone I was very close to who was at the time kind of really living into the toxic masculinity side of being a teenage boy. And he would like, you know, like gag when he would see something like that. Or mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, I, the, I remember the first time I really saw 
a gay couple was at my aunt and uncle's wedding in like 97 or 98, somewhere around there. And it gave me so much internal excitement because I was like, this is beautiful. I think I want this in my life. And then that same person (laughs) saw them and was like, that's disgusting. I can't believe they're here. And immediately I was like, oh, um, maybe I'm not, that's not something I can think about. Uh As it, as it came time to choose uh, college, um, I had my eyes set on Savannah College of Art and Design to really focus on a career in creating comics. But at the same time, I had been given so many ministry opportunities in high school to preach and to lead worship with my guitar. And um, I, I really, I was, I was pretty evangelical as a teenager in the sense that um, I wasn't as conservative as the people around me were. I was very much kind of a diplomat trying to help people not be super extreme, mm-hmm. but I did, I did want my friends to know Jesus. So I was pretty open about um, sharing Jesus with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that I was kind of good at it. Uh, anyway, I, I did have several friends at the time, and I've heard this throughout my whole life, say, if more Christians were like you, maybe I would be a Christian, mm-hmm. which is probably, I would say, the highest compliment yes. you can get as someone who's a borderline evangelical. Um, so I, I really, once I compared going to art school versus going to a smaller private institution for religious studies, I got more excited about the religious studies stuff. Mm-hmm. So I really kind of, I, I went to um, a Baptist college in North Carolina and um, really immersed myself in religious studies and campus ministry and um, uh, did art on the side. It was my minor. I did work study with art. So I kept my feet there and did comics for the school newspaper. Uh, that school was, thankfully, the religious, the religion department wasn't super conservative. They would have definitely be considered progressive by most Baptist standards. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really opened my eyes to biblical criticism and um, that there's more to the Bible than just maybe what I'd been taught at that charismatic youth group. Right. It it rang more true with what I was learning at my Methodist youth group. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I was getting involved in campus ministry and leading worship on campus, um, I was kind of, um, I had positioned myself to be this like Christian example to people around me. Mm -hmm. Um, But more and more, I was um, secretly, all I could think about was guys. I had a very strong crush for several years on someone um, and very much refused to allow myself come close to touching that. And, um, I still, I wouldn't have said I was gay. Like that, that thought didn't Mm -hmm. occur to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that the campus ministry perpetuated that purity culture vibe. And, um, it was like at the time when this true love waits was at its peak and, um, I kissed dating goodbye had really shaped this whole we're not even going to hold hands or kiss until we're married. Oh, wow. Kind of, this is what holiness looks like. I had a best friend who was a girl. I felt like, well, okay, I have more feelings for her than I've ever had for a girl before. So this must be what 
love is supposed to feel like. And so we started dating and um, I thought that I was really holy because I didn't care if we didn't hold hands or didn't kiss. Um, so, wow, I'm really good at abstinence, you know? <laughs> I don't know. We did the very young Christian thing and, you know, got engaged and married as soon as we graduated from college with like zero life experience. So, yes. <laughs> um, Get that man before your senior year's over, girls. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I just, um, I believed like I was a name it and claim it kind of Christian I believed because I had been faithful to this entire process of the purity culture movement that God would reward me and make me straight and my feelings for men would go away once I finally was intimate with a woman okay Mm -hmm. yeah I I bought that hook line and sinker and immediately on our honeymoon was like (gasps) I, I was lied to. <laughs> <laughs> this didn't work. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah. But at that point, so I, I, I tend to be, you know, fiercely loyal and um, I'm an Enneagram nine. So I do whatever I can to make everybody around me happy at my own expense. <laughs> so I just um, developed as a young adult married man in a mixed orientation marriage, Mm -hmm. um, very unhealthy patterns that I had not really had before. And I don't have any more where I at all costs would cover up my sexuality and my sexual desires. Mm -hmm. Um, my wife at the time also was very, uh, sexually conservative and, um, like in her mind, me having any sexual feelings or desires apart from us being having sex together was a sin. So like any self-pleasure was a sin. We weren't very sexually compatible. So we didn't do the marriage act very often. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started feeling guilty because I was lying to her about pleasing myself more regularly mm-hmm. and pretending that I don't really want sex. I just want you to be happy. And um, I, I really was like from a young age, very anti-toxic masculinity. So I, but I twisted that against myself to think anything that I want must be toxic. I started really kind of seeking more outlets to pursue and just express and experience my attraction to other mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. Um, while still doing my best to be loyal to my wife and to not do anything that would harm our marriage. That must have been emotionally exhausting. It was awful mm-hmm. because I was, I was also, I didn't want anybody to get even a hint that I liked guys. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly monitoring my mannerisms, the way I talked Um, the kinds of things I allowed myself to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Um, Like in college, I had said something about liking this musical and some girl was like, oh my God, are you gay? And I was (gasps) like, oh, I I can't like musicals. They'll know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so I just, I spent my twenties just trying to be what everybody thought I was already. Mm -hmm. And um I was, I was 
really successful in youth ministry and loved it. Um, so I decided to pursue ordination in my denomination, the United Methodist Church. We came to divinity school and um, through divinity school, I still was theologically conservative on my understandings of the Bible and being gay. Mm-hmm. But it slowly changed, especially as um, I started to meet gay Christians and have former youth come out to me. And I saw, um, holy cow, okay, A, these people are just like me. <laughs> uh, B, they very clearly have the fruit of the spirit in their lives. There's no doubt that they are both gay and Christian. Mm-hmm. So I have to rethink what I've been taught. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I became kind of a, a nervous ally and that I didn't want to speak up too much because I was afraid proximity to the gay community would out me. Yeah. Um, but in my thirties, I had kids and felt completely locked in now to the loyalty I had for this heteronormative life. Mm-hmm. And um, I began experiencing profound depression and anxiety and cycles. Um, I became a workaholic and a perfectionist in ministry to try and compensate for um, this, this great big secret I had yeah. and my unhappiness. Um, I became much more angry at other people and um, quick to, uh, I guess, be quick to impatience with imperfection in other people. Um, and I hated that about myself. And I, I vividly remember that season of my life actively praying. I, I, I used to pray out loud a lot more, like when nobody was around or when I was in my car. I, I remember audibly saying in my car you are not gay that is a lie from the devil um god is going to protect you Hmm. um and it's going to protect your family like those were the mantras i was telling myself gosh uh by 2018 um i i couldn't keep up Uh what i was doing anymore um I couldn't keep up hiding who I was. I couldn't keep up the workaholism I had at church. By and large, my ministry was, was very successful and very loved. And I just constantly felt like these people only love me because of what I can give them. They don't love me. They wouldn't love me if they knew who I right. was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that would, that would hit home when like a church member would come up to me and say, well, I hope our denomination doesn't go gay because I couldn't be at this church if we had a gay pastor and like they're saying that to me not knowing that they already have a gay pastor right Mm -hmm. whom they love yeah um and so i i started um my internal anxiety and depression started to have a physical impact on my body Mm um i was experiencing um motion sickness and vertigo all the time um grinding my teeth to the point that they were cracking. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. And um, I, I knew something had to change, but I wasn't sure I could stay in ministry, but I also wasn't sure 
what else I would do with my life. So I should, I should step back just a moment to say um, during that time period of all of this stress and anxiety and workaholism is when I started my weekly web comic. Ah. I actually started it to try and reconnect with something that had always brought me joy, which was making art and comics and things that make people think and make people laugh. And um, honestly, I started it thinking nobody would read it because who's going to read a comic about two historical church figures from the 1700s um, in today's world? And um, I just started it as a discipline to get back into the habit of making art and comics every week. Um, And it, it became like a spiritual experience for me to process who I was and what I believed without coming out, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and it was really rewarding because I did start to gain a pretty big audience and get lots of feedback and realize that there were a lot of other Christians out there who, who kind of needed this way to articulate what they were believing. Mm-hmm. In 2018, we were going on a a family vacation and I got a phone call from a church um, saying that someone had put me down as a reference for this youth ministry job. And then they described the youth ministry job to me and asked me if I thought this person was a good fit. And I was like, yes, but also you just described my dream job. Can I apply too? Does that make me a bad person? (laughs) I love that. Yeah, so um, they did uh, take my application and I had to run it by my family because it would mean a move. Um, I did not at the time intend on coming out at all. I just knew I needed a completely new space. Uh And I knew that I didn't want to be in a church that was on the fence about gay inclusion. Um, So um, I came to... Chapel Hill, um, started youth ministry at a completely affirming church. It it was so life-giving. It was like, it was kind of like a start over. Like all of a sudden I felt like, okay, I had all this pressure about worrying about what people think about me, but here they don't know I'm gay, but I know that they are okay with it. So maybe I don't have to come out. Was this also um, a Methodist church? Yes. Also a Methodist church six months passed thinking that way. And then I started to realize that um, the older we got, the more respect I had for my wife and the more proud I was of her accomplishments, the more thankful I was for her authenticity. And the more I realized how unfair it was to our relationship for me to continually tell her I love her and not tell her that I was, at the time I was saying, I'm, I am bisexual. That's what I was telling this. And so I remember vividly starting to read about these situations where married couples had been married for a long time. And then one partner comes out to the other and how they did it and how they handled it. And so I started coming up with a plan. Um, and I remember it was um, early summer of 2019 and the kids were away my wife and I uh, were like having just a really fun time together. 
And I kept saying, okay, at this point on this day, I'm going to tell her. And I, I remember um, sitting in a coffee shop, um, having a great conversation and gearing myself up to come out to her. Mm. And I felt like so much, it was both like a, a, a joy to get it out, but also a terror um, because I had no idea what would happen. And I, I came to the point where I felt the words on my mouth. And then I was like, nope, you're not doing this today. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and, um, and I walked away from that and I over-spiritualized it. And I said to myself, this was Abraham taking Isaac to the mountaintop. And he was willing to do it. But the Holy Spirit, God stopped him and said, don't do it. And I completely spiritualized that and said, God does not want me to come out. Wow. Um, and so <laughs> I told my therapist that, and he was like, he kind of gave me that look that <laughs> I'm not sure therapists are allowed to give their clients, but um, uh, he did a good job of helping me process how maybe that was a problematic way to look at things. <laughs> um Anyway, we came to our 15th anniversary in October of that year, and we took a trip that um, we'd always wanted to do, just the two of us, a week together in Maine, and everything was perfect, except for we couldn't be intimate together. I just, I couldn't make it work anymore. And so that was just deeply frustrating for both of us. And we came back from that trip and I was like, no more excuses. I have to figure out how to come out to her. Um, so my therapist helped me come up with a plan and a timeline. So I, I wrote letters to help me figure out what I wanted to say. And then I tore them up and threw them away in trash cans that would never be found. And uh, finally on December 1st of 2019, it was just the two of us. And I called in sick at church. It was a Sunday morning. And um, I just sat by the fireplace until she woke up. Aww. And she, she came downstairs and was like, what are you doing here? And then she could immediately tell something was very, very wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I told her everything. I just dumped it all out. And she held my hand the whole time. And she just sort of watched me. She, she. And I, I came out as bisexual to her in that conversation. We both kind of just spent the rest of the day separate, just sort of processing what happened. And then my dad came home with the kids and both of us just like ran up to my dad and hugged him and began sobbing. Oh. And dad could tell something was really wrong and we weren't going to tell him right away. So he called mom and said he was going to stay for a while to help us out. Within two or three days, I came out to him and told him everything. And within a few days after that, I came out to my mom. And um, both my parents were incredibly loving. They cried with me. Dad said he's known since I was a kid. Um, he said the reason he cried at my wedding was because he knew I wasn't supposed to marry a woman. Oh, and, um, doesn't that drive you nuts? <laughs> I was like, why didn't we ever talk <laughs> why about Why didn't you this? tell me this? <laughs> <laughs> and um by that around that time I, I came out to my two closest friends who had been my like we had been confidants for years and, and one of them particularly told me charlie i've known 
Mm. I've just been waiting for you to tell me your story. Mm. My wife asked me the question that I had always been too scared to let myself answer, which was, was she the only thing that made me bisexual? Ooh, what an intuitive question. Oh my goodness. And I was like, holy crap. Yeah, I'm not attracted to women at all. If I were single right now, I would not even consider dating a woman. Crap, I'm gay. Yeah. And it was Christmas time and we're sitting there like decorating the Christmas tree. And I've just said, I'm gay for the first time out loud. I, I can't decorate the Christmas tree with my family. I go out to the car and close the door and just start screaming and banging on the, mm-hmm. the dashboard saying, I don't want to be gay because uh-huh. I didn't want to lose my family. Yeah. My, my wife got to a point where she was able to allow herself to be angry now, um, which caused her to really dig into questions that I had not yet considered, um, such as, did I ever love her? Um, how could I possibly say I'd loved her ever if I'd never told her this and all of these other things? And, um, and if I was gay, how could that possibly mean that I really loved her as a straight woman? And um, she started asking me like, who are you? I don't even know who you are anymore. Um, whoever you are killed the husband that I used to have and I don't want to be around you anymore and um I had a a breakdown where I blacked out I woke up and I didn't know where I was or who was in the house with me and so Lori and my dad both came in and were trying to just help me get a bearing of my surroundings and I started talking like I was either a little kid or an old man with dementia, but like slowly just reawakening to everything that had just been building. And Lori was a nurse. So she recognized this as a um, psychological sort of breakdown. Mm -hmm. So um, they rushed me to the emergency room and they, they saw me immediately. I I woke up the next day and I was in, um, green and red pajamas like that they give to people who are suicide risks at the hospital so that there's a visual they had placed like a I call it a babysitter someone to keep guard over me Mm -hmm. and um, the psychologist came in and said that I had had what was called a dissociative fugue um, where your brain like kind of literally leaves your body (laughs) because it it can't process what's happening Um, And it it does kind of cause a temporary amnesia and that it was so rare that he was like, please do not worry. There, it is unlikely that this would ever happen to you again. Um, And so they were convinced that we had enough systems in place at home to protect me, to let me go home safely. Um, But they removed all pills and all sharp objects from the house. And uh, I was kind of like a 24 hour watch over me for a while it felt like all of my biggest fears were coming true, you know? And so I desperately was like trying to figure out how can I be gay and keep this marriage and make it work? Yeah. Because, um, I mean, sure we had our problems, but she was still my best friend, you know? 
Yeah. So um, I, I met with somebody that uh, I thought would really help me figure that out uh, because she had, she had helped a lot of people in similar situations. And she was like, Charlie, um, it almost never works. Um, you can try. Um, but I want to tell you stories of couples who have separated and how they've resolved and become happy for each other afterwards. So she was not trying to give me any like false sense of you can make this work, mm-hmm. um, which just broke my heart. Like yeah. I just came home crying. And um, um, so slowly I was letting people know um, my brothers and um I let uh, the church, the, the other pastors on staff know. And at, at that point, everyone that I told was completely loving and affirming. And um, I was very slow and cautious the first few months to come out to people. Right about the week that Lori and I decided we definitely were separating, uh, the COVID pandemic lockdown <laughs> happened. <laughs> And we thought everybody we knew and loved was going to die because there was not much information at the time. Yeah. And so I just moved into the basement because we were like, we can't make a huge life change when the world is falling apart. (laughs) So it became clear that um, COVID was going to last longer than everybody thought. Um, So we finally um, talked to our kids, uh, but we did not tell them that I was gay in that conversation. And I don't really remember at all what we said, except for my daughter was very intuitive. She was probably in third grade at the time. And she was just thankful to finally have an explanation for why there'd been so much emotional distress in the house for months. I I bought a house just a mile from where we were living. Once I kind of, I, I was afraid that being in a, in a house, alone, like sharing custody of my children instead of having them every moment of every day Mm -hmm. was going to, I thought it was going to like send me back into those depressive cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, I had kind of broken free from that with a a slow realization that not only did the people I cared about most still love me, but I think maybe God still loves me too, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Plus I finally got some some medication that helped regulate my extreme emotions. And and then moving into this house, I allowed myself to start experiencing gay culture, which is very hard to do during a lockdown. Yes. (laughs) Um, But I allowed myself to start making gay friends Mm -hmm. um, and letting people who knew me introduce me to the gay friends that they had. And um, suddenly I was like, gay people aren't nearly as scary as I thought. Um, I, I guess I had this impression and maybe this is a common impression, but, um, that if a gay man meets another gay man, um, they're suddenly going to violate everything the Lord has ever withheld them from. (laughs) Like just that two gay men can't be in the room together without keeping their hands off each other. And, um, it it was very, naive way to think because suddenly I'm making gay friends and they're lovely people and we're not instantly like promiscuous um 
pits of hell, <laughs> depths of sin, people. Um, and so I, I, I stopped being afraid mm-hmm. of being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to see I can still be who I am and be most who I am without betraying a lot of values that I've kept my whole life. And so that summer, I really, really came alive. Um, and I had the convenience of the pandemic to, um, nobody knew what was going on with anybody because we were all isolated. So I had lots of time and solitude to process everything. So I, I did use that summer to start coming out to more family members, um, and more friends and, um, eventually my children and uh, they were great, um, they didn't fully understand at the time because they were so young, but that it was kind of like a, okay, moving on. Let's, let's keep playing um, <laughs> sort of moment. Um, and, and then I reached a point as the school year started, I, I wanted to be out publicly. I, I wanted people to know that our lives had changed in our family. And this is the reason why. So I had to navigate that with my ex-wife because I also it significantly affected her and her community Um, so I didn't want to do anything without us working through it together Um, at the time she was still very angry and we didn't talk much except for about logistics with kids Uh I had also in the United Methodist Church it's currently against our rules for um, ministers to be um, they say practicing homosexuals, mm-hmm. but what they mean is just homosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, they keep trying to defend the rule by saying, well, if you're not practicing, we won't do anything. But the truth is they are, you know, most conferences, if they know you're gay, they're not going to ordain you regardless mm-hmm. of whether you have a partner or not. Mm-hmm. I wanted the church to know. And it was a risk because I didn't know if I'd be able to keep my ordination. I knew that the church where I worked at would keep me. So I talked to the Bishop of North Carolina. She was very affirming and affirmed my decision to come out. She didn't say anything about whether she would or wouldn't protect me if charges were brought against me. But the night before I came out publicly, she called and prayed for me and my family, which oh. was, it meant the world to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So because it was COVID, we kind of had a multi-step process for coming out. <laughs> um, we emailed an official letter to the church. Um, and my best friend, Jason, and my supervisor, who's also a close friend, Toby, sat with me all morning on the porch. Um, just, you know, as this non-eventful giant event in my life released as email just goes out <laughs> to the ether, you know, we pre, we were doing pre-recorded worship at the time and, uh, in my robe with my rainbow stole on that I had just bought, I came out with our pastor standing beside me, uh, also affirming me in ministry and in the church and as a gay man. And then at youth group, that night we were meeting in person for youth group outdoors. And at that point, many of them would have heard by now, but I kind of officially came out to my youth group that night. And none of us knew how it would go because the church was affirming on paper. Okay. 
but they had never had an openly gay staff member, let alone an openly gay clergy member. So everybody kind of just waited with bated breath to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what? They, they didn't get a single complaint. Wow. Not a single person left the church. Wow. I was honestly, I was nervous that like all of a sudden maybe parents or the boys in the youth group would be uncomfortable around me mm-hmm. for some reason because of the way I grew up in the nineties thinking that, Oh, gay men are predators and you can't trust them. And, um, got none of that. Everybody was just happy for me. And they loved that I was being like who I was, who I was. And so, you know, I know my story is not universal um, Mm -hmm. because it's so rare to come out, especially in a church setting. Yes. Um, But so many seeds had been planted in that community of love and acceptance that it turns out it's not the gay people are the problem. It's the homophobic people. (laughs) Um, Of which some of us still are toward ourselves. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Internalized homophobia is real. Yes. And it surprises me when it comes up. Anyway, I, I, I just began to really thrive and grow in ministry. I felt for the first time I'd been preaching for like almost 20 years about God's like beloved, you are God's beloved child. Um, Christ is the one who makes you worthy and you are already worthy. You don't have to mm-hmm. prove anything. And I believed it was true for everyone except for me because God had never fixed me. Mm-hmm. And so when I finally accepted that there was nothing to fix Um, that God made me this way and wanted to see me thrive and happy in it. Uh, All of a sudden I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. The gospel is real for me too. (laughs) Um, That was not the answer, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. So I just, I I felt like my faith was coming alive Mm. in a way that it hadn't before had a really good year in ministry, but it was still pandemic ministry. So it was very hard for everyone who works in a church to figure out how to provide community when you can't really be together. Yeah. And, and teenagers and children hate zoom. So zoom worked great for adult ministry groups, but it was bombed for children and youth ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, as um, time went by um, the dynamics with my former partner and I, my, my ex-wife changed significantly. I like to think that, authenticity has always been the most honest, the, the most important honesty and authenticity are her highest values. So when she finally kind of came to the conclusion that I, I wasn't going to become some sort of weird person that she'd never really known that I was still the same person she'd always known. So I, that part of what had always attracted me to Lori was, um, just she was so authentic and valued honesty so much and I had always felt like that was something that I wanted but struggled to achieve yeah um so over after a year and plus had passed I had been consistent enough as the parent of our children and in ministry and in my community that she realized that my being gay wasn't changing who I was. It wasn't this fundamental departure from who she knew me to be. Um, But instead I was living into the very thing she valued most, which was honesty and authenticity. Mm. Um, 
And she also recognized that my family still valued and loved her. And she didn't lose my parents or my brothers or anything just because we were separated. Um, and so she started to become very friendly and kind towards me. And um, she knew that I had started dating and we were pretty serious. And so we came to a point where we were all comfortable for Lori and the kids to meet my partner, Tim. And so I was a little nervous about that, but, um, <laughs> but we all got together. I knew Tim would be great with kids. Um, he'd, he'd, he had come out much younger, never thought he would be married or have kids, but he's very good with kids. And um, he and Lori like got along immediately. Oh, nice. um, such that they were like sharing numbers with each other. And um, yeah, so now we all, we hang out together. We go on vacations together. Um, we do holidays together. And um, it's just, it's really quite lovely. Um, so in uh, December, uh, Tim took me to New York City at Christmas time. And uh, I kid you not, uh, had reserved for us to go skating, ice skating at Rockefeller Center. Oh! And then all of a sudden they ask everybody to clear the ice and he keeps me on the ice and our song starts playing Luckiest by Ben Folds and he poses me in front of that giant Christmas tree and gets down on one knee and proposes to me with what felt like all of New York watching. <laughs> and um, they're all applauding and it was just this beautiful moment. And um, really, the success of that night was that neither of us fell on our ice skate <laughs> in front of all of New York right after he proposed. How beautiful. <laughs> How beautiful. You deserved that for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because we tell people that story and they're either horrified because they're like, I would hate to be the center of attention like that. <laughs> Or they're like, oh, that's so beautiful. It is beautiful. And it's a <laughs> testimony to, you know, to your journey that we go through such fire and we go through such pits of, of despair. And then the beautiful moments are right around the corner. And if we can just hang on and wait and know that it will be revealed, our lives will reveal itself and we can step into the greatness of it. But it's yeah. so hard in the pits of despair to wait or even to imagine that it's going to get better. Um, but it, it can and it does. Never in a million years envisioned that I could be out and with a partner yeah. and still have a fantastic relationship with my kids and my church and my family, you know, mm -hmm. um, because that's not true for so many people. I do fundamentally believe that accepting who we are completely is at the heart of the gospel, right? It's mm -hmm. what's always been preached. It just sometimes has been turned into who you are is a miserable worm that deserves hell. <laughs> and when you accept that, then you can be saved. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure that's not actually anything close to what Jesus taught. Yeah. Yeah, and I do read the Bible a lot, not just <laughs> casually. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. Well, and I, I love how the story ended because it, it gives hope to all those people who never got to hear 
how how this can progress. And and even like when you said that your father had known all along, I think that's what I want to take away from this story is that we need to be talking to kids. <laughs> we need to be letting them know that there are options and not not that we are turning kids gay, but we are loving the gay kids that don't know it. And we're giving them the opportunity to come into their authenticity. It's not purity culture now, but it's it's like this very streamlined decision to try to get kids not to follow this path, you know, and it's, it's very prevalent right now in some of the churches, making sure that they're not just getting this God made you this way sexuality class, it's God didn't make you this way. You cannot be this. And it's very scary because we're going to have another whole generation of kids. As much as we are now being able to be open and proud and things have evolved for us, there's still now this next generation of kids where they're trying to put that fear back in them and see all of this on the internet and all of this and everybody in your school that's coming out. It's all wrong. It's all bad. And it's going back almost to purity culture for those kids. Right. It's interesting, you know, the more I study um, kind of, so I love to study history and just sort of see all the threads mm-hmm. that created why we are as a people today, mm-hmm. the way we are. And, um, you know, there is, there is kind of a historic precedent for um, when great progress is made in some sort of civil rights area. Mm-hmm. There's, there's almost an equal but opposite reaction mm-hmm. of, well, uh, we're not going to accept the way things are becoming. And mm-hmm. um, so we're going to change our tactics. You yeah. know, it's not lost on me um, how many kids and adults are out there hiding mm-hmm. um, and hating themselves mm-hmm. because of this rhetoric. Yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've come to terms with the fact that I alone cannot save the world or change the hearts and minds of people who are doing great damage. Mm. Um, but I can be a truth teller yes. and I can live authentically and I mm-hmm. can trust the Holy spirit and continue to proclaim the gospel and um, be faithful to who God has called me to be mm-hmm. and allow the Holy spirit to work fruits in whatever way they're going to do it. Yeah. Yep. And I think that, that you are doing that and you have always done that to the best of your ability. Um, you know, even through the broken times, you know, you were still faithful to, to your ministry and you might not have had as much energy at times to be in that ministry and you weren't always well, but you were also there for those kids. And, um, and for the people that you served. So I think you just muted yourself. Um, oh, there you go. Awesome. <laughs> um, so, so what is the one takeaway that you would want to share with, with people who are listening that you wish you had, had said to you or something that you wish that, you know, had been given to you as a gift when you were struggling so much? I would say that if we truly believe the claims of the gospel, then um, there is no human, yourself included, who uh, can do anything to prove your worthiness to God mm. or 
can do anything to prove your unworthiness because see, I thought I was consistently proving that I was unworthy mm-hmm. uh, because of who I was. And therefore I had to constantly prove through being a good person and doing all these things perfectly. Maybe I could be worthy, yeah. but the heart of the gospel is Christ has already called you worthy and God's love for you is infinite. Like there's, we can't even possibly fathom. And that's, that's for you struggling little gay, Charlie, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, that's not just everybody else except you. That is you with all of you, every part of your story, every good thing about you, every bad thing about you, every neutral thing about you, you know, all of, all of you is loved by God. And, and so that's the heart of what I kind of constantly try to preach. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a conservative pushback to that statement is, oh, you're not taking sin seriously. I, I still take sin very seriously, you know, common for a conservative pushback to be like, well, yes, God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. So he's not going to let you be gay, <laughs> you know, and I'm he like, did. <laughs> yeah, well, he's let you be a bigot. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> But I think you said it perfectly when you said there was nothing to fix, you know, if and all the people who have tried to pray the gay away and it didn't work, it's because it wasn't supposed to work. It, you know, if it were supposed to work and God was as great as God is, then if you prayed earnestly with all of your sweat and tears and your humble screaming of, I don't want this, take this from me. God's not going to sit there and do nothing. God is going to honor that prayer, especially if being gay was the big sin. It it is not the big sin. Hate is the big sin, you know, in hospitality. Yeah. I mean, it's just, people just are so afraid to let go of the, of the past. You know, they're afraid to, they're afraid to go to hell. I always say that, that I, I think the biggest bigot is afraid that if they conspire with us that they're going to go to hell right along with us but we ain't going for that maybe something (laughs) but that's another story (laughs) i have a friend who just got married to her female partner and her evangelical pastor mom said i cannot support you because i do not want to go to hell i would rather lose you as my child than go to hell for supporting sin well, I would love to like, see her at the pearly gates when she shows up with I'm that. like, what gospel have you read that makes you think that? I know, I know, I know. Yeah, we need a we we need a whole new kind of uh, education for for folks coming up. But Charlie, this has been so wonderful. I could actually talk to you for hours. Um, that, <laughs> seriously, you're you're just so so good. I just love everything that you talked about today. And I really thank you. I thank you for stepping in and, and sharing this light for someone else to follow. And I thank you for being there for kids who are going to need you at some point in their life. And you're going to be the one that lets them know that they don't have to kill themselves. They don't have to go into despair. They don't have to go through a a marriage full of all of the stress and tension. You know, they can find the person they love and they can be authentic and be with God. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Oh, I love it.
I love it. And I want to thank you listeners for coming back each week, supporting, sharing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to see more information and links to connect with Charlie, go to the Gay With God show page at empoweredmidge.podbean.com. If you are questioning whether you can be gay and be in a relationship with God, if you are authentically LGBTQIA and you just got to know that God has always been with you. Even though you didn't know it, you have always been gay with God. Thank you, everybody. See you next week and stay tuned to see how you can join the Gay With God community. Don't forget that I have started a monthly faith journey group on Zoom at the Gay With God Facebook page, and I will be taking the Gay With God podcast again to the Wild Goose Festival. That's July 14th through the 17th. A guest lined up that's going to be live with me, and so we will post that as soon as we can get it formatted and bring it back to you. So lots is going on, and we've got Pride Month here here with us right now. And um, just as a side note, if you are in my area um, in Asheboro, North Carolina, our priest at the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd asked me, would it be okay if he offered a pride mass for us? And I was like, yeah. So if you are in this area um, on June 28th at six o'clock, we will meet at the outdoor chapel and he is going to do a pride mass for us. And I'm so grateful and thankful for Father Joe and for, for him helping me navigate my kicking and screaming, fearful little self back into church. So (laughs) it's all good. Hang out to the next chapter because the book's not over. See you guys next week. Love you. I want to invite you to become a part of the Gay With God community. How can you do that? Stay connected by messaging me your thoughts and comments in the comment section under the downloads of the show on the Gay With God show page. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and share, share, share so we can increase our community outreach and be a light to those who are struggling to claim their faith. Consider being a sponsor so I can highlight your service in our community. We are all worthy of respect and a relationship with the God of our understanding. I want to thank you in advance for supporting this podcast. Together, we as a community will keep this show visible and our community stronger. Deep gratitude to my friend Tim McClendon of Tim McClendon Music for allowing me to use an excerpt from Interlude 4, a song found on his CD entitled Sundance.